Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution.
that was Kevin Bowe from his brand new release, and we got Kevin on the line. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Good. Good to be with you. It's good to have you on. Now, this is the first time you've been on our show, and we always start things off by giving our fans an opportunity to get to know you, to get to know where you came from and how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Kevin Bowe. I'll give you the... Can I leave out the bad parts and the sure, stupid parts? Sure, you can leave out... Okay. You know, let's, let, you don't even have to start at conception. We can go with... <laughs> <where we are. laughs> I, would, I don't even want to think about that. Um, <laughs> I am, have lived in uh, Minneapolis my whole life. And, um, born in 1961, so, you know, my earliest musical memories are, like, listening to Sgt. Pepper under the door of my sister's room. She wouldn't let me in her room. Um, and, uh, so I would, um, listen under the door. And I remember the first song I fell in love with, with, with was, uh, Within You Without You off of Sergeant Pepper. And Drew Harrison's always been my favorite Beatles. Just obsessed with that, with that song and that sound. Um, but so I grew up with classic rock, you know, uh, we didn't call it classic rock. We just called it rock, rock, just yeah. called it rock. Yeah. And, uh, the radio was amazing. And the first, uh, you know, cause it was, uh, it was free form. You know, it was before AOR format was invented. So FM radio was like, they would play Howlin' Wolf into Joni Mitchell into uh, Sun Ra. You know, I mean, it was like into Led Zeppelin. It was just, there was no rules. Um, then right around in 1976, I was in, I think, a 10th grade, and they came up with that AOR format. And music kind of changed from, you know, that weird 70s music to kind of more corporate rock. And the shift was pretty, I remember it being pretty sudden. All of a sudden it was foreigner and journey and heart and uh, and things like that that nothing against those bands they made some music that i that i like but it wasn't really my thing as much as the weirder music from the 60s and the first half of the 70s so i kind of started moving going back i started playing guitar when i was 13 mostly by listening to the who live at leeds um just over and over and over and copying what he did but, um, you know, started forming little high school rock bands. It never even occurred to me to write a song because it's like, hey, the Rolling Stones have all these great songs. We'll just use those. You know, it wasn't a very sophisticated <laughs> outlook. But you, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I was just happy to be on stage playing a, you know, playing a, a song. It just never occurred to me to write one or sing one. Um, then at the end of high school, I had gotten myself in a bunch of trouble with uh, Dope and uh in my defense, I will say that all the other kids were doing it too. It wasn't just mm -hmm. me, but um, so they popped me in rehab. And I met this guy who played me the Ramones' first album, and it just was life changing because I was so alienated from the music of the time. I was like, you know, uh, it just wasn't hitting me like the earlier '70s music was. So um, then they they popped me after rehab. They popped me into this really strict halfway house where it's like. I mean, just really military strict. And um, I was in there for seven months, and I met these other guys who were into punk rock, and when we all got out, they asked me to be in their punk rock band, and we were terrible. But it was a, an amazing time to be in Minneapolis, because, you know, from, say, 81 till 87, Minneapolis was kind of the musical center of the world, because we had, on the punk rock side, we had the replacements and who's could do. Uh, doing, you know, changing the world with their music. And on the other side, we had Prince culminating in Purple Rain in 84. And so I didn't, I was too young and dumb to realize at the time that I was very lucky to be in such an environment. Um, I wasn't very successful, you know, I was mostly in opening bands. But, um, you know, my punk rock band, the lead singer, one of our more popular songs was I Don't Want to Join the Army that he wrote. And then he quit the band to join the army. So I thought, well, I better learn to sing and write because I can't deal with lead singers, you know. So um, it was more a, ma a matter of, you know, a utilitarian self-preservation, not not like, I want to be creative. Um, so I started fronting my own bands and writing. And I was just to the point where I'm turning 30, and a lot of the people I went to high school with were turning into, you know, doctors and lawyers and stuff. And here I was still in an opening band, working a crappy day job. And I had a gig... And this guy, I met this guy, a producer named David Z, and he had uh, produced a bunch of print stuff and Fine Young Cannibals, got Grammy for the record of the year for that, and just a, a really superstar multi-platinum producer. And he gave me the talk, which was, 
you're not very good and your band isn't very good, but your songs are good. And if someone better than you was singing, you could make a lot of money. <laughs> so um, I didn't know what publishing was or anything. It was pre-internet, so a lot of musicians, you know, didn't know what publishing was or anything. But I, I was like, okay. So he he asked me for a cassette, you know, of some of my songs. I gave him one, and he took one and put it on Kenny Wayne Shepherd's first album, and it went platinum. And that was that. Um, I I started thinking of myself as a songwriter more than a you know than a than an artist. Uh, and then shortly after that, I had another lucky break. I was doing a crappy gig up in Fargo. The opening act was a, another underage blues rock guitar player. Kid has only been playing for nine months. His name was Johnny Lang. And so um, I, uh, I got to be friends with him. I remember he thought I was a big deal because I'd written for Kenny Wayne Shepherd. And I remember just seeing his, he was only 13, but I was like, you are going to be way bigger than Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Um, and so I got to be friends with him and you know we started writing songs together i introduced him to david z my much smarter much more powerful producer friend and we got him signed to a and did two double platinum records that i wrote a bunch of songs on and so that really solidified me as a as a songwriter and so that's how i got into the business really it's if, i mean without david z i'm i'm still working a day job right okay well let's talk about this new release um if you were to run into a buddy on the street and you had to give him that elevator pitch about this particular <laughs> release, um, what would you tell him about it? I would say it's like the Island of Misfit Toys. These are songs I was never going to do another record of my own stuff because there's no reason to. You know, I, I don't perform live anymore, and I, I'm super happy writing and producing records for other people. Um, but it was covid and I had these leftover songs that I really liked, and I knew nothing was ever going to happen with them, you know, unless I did them. So I had time, and I had my own studio. So I just did them. I don't think there's a lot of cohesion between the songs. It's just stuff I like. I think it ranges from, you know, Tom Petty to The Replacements to George Harrison, um, little Harry Nelson, you know. So I guess it's kind of that kind of record that someone makes where they're it's, it's selfish, you know, they just make it for themselves, and if other people like it, great. But I don't have any big plans for it or aspirations. The, the luckiest thing that could happen for me is that some of the songs get used in film or TV or something like that. Okay. So Now, let's talk a little bit about you as a songwriter. Um, you know, uh, every songwriter has their way of tapping into the muse. Uh, what is your process when you sit down to write? I hate to de-romanticize it, but for me, I write so much because I spent all the 90s writing with and for other artists and, and done it ever since. I started producing around in, in the 2000s. Um, but so it's not that precious for me. I'm in the mood to write all the time. Um, but what, what I do is every time I think of an idea for a title or an idea for a song or even an idea for a line... I'm really disciplined in that I always write it down. Always write it down. Even if later I open it up and I look at it and I go, oh my God, that's stupid. so dumb. I have to delete that before anyone sees it. But so all I need to write a song then is time. If I have a free hour, a free day or whatever, then I just open up this list. You know, and if I really have my act together, then I categorize it like this. You know, here's some blues ideas. Here's some pop ideas. Here's some... Nashville ideas or whatever. Um, and so then I look at them until one of them grabs me, and then hopefully I get the same feeling, you know, that I had when I thought it up. And then you're off to the races. So I don't need to be inspired. I just need to go into that, like, closet of inspiration and bring something up until I find something uh, that's hopefully cool. Yeah, and it sounds a lot like the, the Nashville mentality, where writing is, is something you just do every day. And the more you do it, of course, it becomes part of your your routine, you know? I, I think that's true, and I, I, I appreciate that. I don't write as much as they do down there. I mean, they often do two appointments every day, Monday through Friday, and I don't, I don't do that. But I do write a lot. The other thing that I think got me, because I spent a lot of the 90s writing in Nashville, and I think uh, yeah, you're right. Another way they're rubbed off on me is that writing is kind of a social thing. In Nashville, you meet someone in a coffee shop. Oh, I'm a musician. Oh, I am too. Hey, let's write sometime. Whereas in a lot of the other cities in the country, L.A. can be like that too. 
But if you're in a city like Minneapolis, if I just met a musician and I was like, you know, hey, you know, we should write sometime, and I didn't really know him, he, he would act like I said, hey, we should both take off all of our clothes sometime together. <laughs> you know what I mean? He wouldn't react well. Because writing in a, in a town like Minneapolis, it's still, it's still kind of like people are precious about it. I always say songs in Minneapolis are something you write so that your band has something to do on stage. Whereas in Nashville or L.A., for better and worse, they write songs because they know that they're like the real estate of the music business. Right. So um, maybe, maybe I'm some, somewhere in between. Now, you know, I'm always curious uh, about lyrics as opposed to melody. Um, lyrics are a craft. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, yeah. It has a certain structure to it. You have to have a story, continuity, rhyme, meter, uh, cadence. But melody's different. Melody, some songwriters like to work off a groove and allow the melody to free form. Others uh, look at the lyrics and, and they allow the cadence to kind of dictate where the melody should go. What do you use as your kind of uh, process to find your melodic ideas? It's funny. That's a really good question um, because it's so hard to bottle that up. And like, if I'm thinking too much about melody, it's going to be not. It's not going to be good, right? You know, um, it kind of just happens when it happens. I think what I do is I. I try and write songs in all the different ways there are to write songs. I won't just pick up a guitar. Even if I do pick up a guitar, I'll often put it in an alternate tuning so I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I don't want to think like a musician when I'm trying to be a songwriter. I don't want to think like I'm a think like a producer either. I want it to be like a little kid picking something up for the first time. So sometimes I'll start with a groove. Sometimes I'll start with a bass or a piano thing, even though I don't really play piano. Anything so I'm not thinking like a musician. Oh, I'm going to go to the six minor chord here. You know, I don't want to do that. So once I get something going, then I usually, hopefully, find myself singing along with myself. Or in best case scenario, since I co-write a lot, the other person comes up with a melody. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's always a gift when you're working. Sometimes when you're working with a great singer, this melodies, the melodies just pour out of them. Right. You know, but a lot of them have trouble with lyric. So when I'm working with other people, no matter how many people are in the room, my philosophy is I just try and sit in the empty chair. I'll do whatever job there is to do that nobody else in the room can do. I think it makes it better for everyone. You know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. And it's interesting yeah. that you would, you know, um, you know, change the tuning or thing or something like that. Because a lot of songwriters I talk to, they say, you know, I'll pick up an instrument I'm not familiar with, and it kind of breaks that, um, how can I say? Um, the habit, like? Yeah, the habit or the mold yeah. that you have that you you run to certain chords, you run to certain sounds, and by picking up something different, something you're not familiar with, can open up new sonic possibilities, you know? Definitely. Yeah, sometimes the best thing to do is think of a melody without chords and start with a melody. Force yourself. Like, or maybe you're in the car and you're you know, singing in your head and you think of a melody and just sing it into your phone and, and then figure out the chords later. That could, those sometimes can be the purest melodies, you know what I mean, if they don't come out of layering on top of a chord. I know there's a lot of bands out there where I'm hearing their songs and I feel like they wrote the song without any melody or lyric, like as a band, you know what I mean? And they wrote, or, or a, a guy made the track, he made the beat, right? And then someone just layered melody and or lyric on top of that. And sometimes I think those songs are like a stack of pancakes. You can hear each layer that someone did. But some of my more favorite songs, I think, are more like a sphere, like a ball, where it all, you know what I mean, where you can't tell that someone just layered something on top of something. It feels more organic. I don't know if that makes sense, but you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, um, a lot of songwriters have embraced some of the technology today as tools in their toolbox, whether it's their cell phone or some of the software that's out there like Master Writer or Songwriter's Pad or even a home studio to lay out a structure and then write to that structure. 
What are some of the tools that you have found that have been indispensable to you as a writer? As a writer, not as a producer? Um, well, even as a producer. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same hat with a different tip. You know? Oh, yeah, different point, different point on it. Yeah. Um, well, I still, I'm, I'm just, you know, enthralled with uh, hardware. I love plugins too, don't get me wrong. You know, but I love... Uh, I'm in my studio right now, and I'm looking at uh, the, the latest thing I just bought is a, an LA-2A um, compressor. Nice. Yeah. Which well, one did you get? I got an Audioscape, so I got, like, it's more expensive than a warm audio, but less expensive than a real LA-2A, which they want, what, four grand for? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but this Audioscape company, they're down kind of by you there in Florida, and they're, they're uh, just really, really a great company. And um, things like that actually inspire me. Um, uh, I like weird old spring reverbs. I have a lot of different kinds of guitars and different tunings so that'll be an inspirational for writing. Um, you know, uh, 12 string acoustic, 12 string electric, a baritone, things like that are, are, um, I think inspiring when writing and, you know, just weird little instruments hanging around that I don't play well. Ukulele, mandolin, banjo, you know, I'm more of a banjo owner than a banjo player, but it is here, a, a mountain dulcimer, a balalaika. And those are, you know, like, it's pretty hard to pick up one of those weird little things without something happening. Right, right. And sometimes people are the inspiration. Like, if I'm working with a co-writer, this is common, if I'm working with a co-writer who's a great singer, then they are the inspiration. You know, because a great singer, that's like a, oh, look, you're like a, a, a 62 Strat, only it's your voice. Do you know what I mean? So... Um, sometimes people just start talking. Like I'm, I'm working with this British girl right now. I say girl because she's 18. And our f- first single is coming out tomorrow. Her name is Courtney Hadwin. She's the, five years ago, she went viral on that America's Got Talent show because she sang that Otis Redding via Black Crows thing, uh, Hard to Handle. She's a little 13-year-old white oh, British yeah, girl. Yeah. Skinny. Remember that? Yeah. She's been in a couple of management deals since then. For five years, she's been in limbo and hasn't released any original music. And she finally got out of her last. She got out of a, the deal that she was just in, and I just hit her up, and we had been working together, writing together. And I just said, look it, let's do this punk rock. You sign up for Disco, Distro Kid. I'm on Distro Kid. We, we wrote these songs together. I'll do the track. You sing it in England. I'll mix it. And I own half. You own half. Nobody else involved. Straight up punk rock. And she said yes. So her first song comes out tomorrow. And I swear that song was inspired just by sitting in the you know on, on FaceTime with her because it was COVID, you know, and listening to her sing because she's an incredible singer. It's just so inspiring being in the room with with a singer like that. She's crazy, crazy good. Wow. Okay. Now, um, let me ask you this: uh, one of those things that I think a lot of songwriters get tripped up on is that moment where you have to put the pen down where you have (laughs) to move that song from the writing phase into the production phase give it to the band the producer or you know or you know start to flesh it out um what do you what is your quantifier that helps you determine when a song is ready to move to that next phase of its life that's a really good question I think I think sometimes one of my shortcomings is that I um I like to be done and finish it. So unlike a lot of people who, you know, I mean hey, I've worked for 15 years on some songs, you know, literally 15 years. Um there's a song on my record that I took it out every couple of years for I swear 12 years. And every time I worked on it, it got worse and worse and worse. Um, but usually when I'm co-writing with someone, then it goes faster. But sometimes I kind of have a, like the Marines, a kill them all, count them later mentality where, like, let's just get it done. And then if we need to go back and change something later, then we can. And one thing I'll say about working digitally is it does make it easier for us to do that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, tape was, was much more committed. So, um but I, uh, yeah, I think I have the other problem where I'm like too, like, yeah, that's good enough. Moving on. Boom. I like to keep it moving because I have in the back of my mind that look at, 
let's just keep it inspired and fresh and fun. If we need to go back and fix something later, we will. When we listen again two days from now, we'll know what sucks. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of more like yeah, that de- my process. Yeah, that definitely answers the question. Now, uh, let's talk about going into the studio. Now, I've been an engineer since 1980. I've been in this a long time. I'm actually sitting in my studio, and we would probably be able to sit for hours geeking out over gear. You know, I think we should, actually. Yeah, I wish we were I mean, on, I have, on a video chat right now yeah. so I can see what you're seeing. Well, I mean, I've got two LA two-ways, the warm audio Real ones. ones. Yeah, well... Oh, the warm audio warm ones, okay. Audio. And I got two 1176s, and I've got uh, eight channels of API, and I got another six channel of Neve 1073s, and... You know, I'm. You know, we I'm like, like the same stuff. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm like I, that's almost parallel to my studio. That's <laughs> great. Know, more gear. Oh, oh, oh. I'm. You know, I'm. I'm like the Tim <laughs> Two Man Taylor of freaking gear. So yeah. <laughs> you know, and my mic closet is just as bad. I mean, I got you know Neumann 103s, TLMs, and I got a U87, and you know, it just it goes on and on and on. You know. Uh, and I never had a U87 until recently, and some guy did. I did a session for it. He didn't pay me. Yeah. So I said, "You're giving me, you're giving me that U87 until you pay me, <laughs> until you pay me." And now it's been two years. Wow. And I still have it. Yeah, well, which I had one? To, you have one of the originals or an AI? No, it's a real. Uh, oh, it's a newer one. Yeah, it's a Neumann, but it's not. A, it's not a, like a warm audio or anything like that. It's a Neumann, but it's a newer one. It's not a vintage piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. This, so it's yeah. the eighty-seven AI. Yeah. 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 Well, it's okay. Bad. It's not. It's yeah. not killing me. My main vocal mic is a two fifty-one, a, a box sound deluxe two fifty-one, and I just the love that thing. Yeah. Yeah, I got the warm audio version of that. I love I, that mic. It's a. It's just so good. I had I had someone loaned me a, one of those Neumann U sixty seven reissues, you know, nine thousand dollar mic recently, and I had it here for months, and I had it up against that two fifty one, and I was like, it's just as good. It's a tiny bit different, but I I wouldn't. It didn't blow away the two fifty one, you know. So I was like, I was surprised because I thought, okay, it costs twice as much. It should sound twice as good. Right. But for me, for my uses. It, it, it wasn't twice as it was a great mic. Don't get me wrong; I was sad to give it back, but I, it made me fall in love with my two fifty one all over again. Oh, but that's a great mic. I, I love using the the two fifty one on female vocals. Exactly. Uh, me too. Yeah, it's just perfect. It's beautiful. It's so smooth. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, <laughs> what? What? You know, I always like to ask. Uh, you know, because everybody has their opinion on DAWs. What DAW do you use? I use Pro Tools, but I'm telling you, I would be just as happy on Logic or Ableton. You know, I mean, I don't care about that. I mean, when I work with people who are, who are Ableton heads, I love it because they, they bring something different. I just right. use Pro Tools because I use Pro Tools. I don't, I'm not one of those guys who argues about, you know, this one's better and that one's better. It's a, it's a pointless argument. Well, yeah. I mean, I, in in my studio, I have Cubase, I have uh, Pro Tools, uh, but I find myself utilizing Studio One more than any other dog. Because it I've just, heard great things about it. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Personas was just purchased by Fender. I heard. I think I heard. Might have heard that. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Oh yeah. Oh, That's good. Well, okay. According to Jim Odom, uh, who's the guy who started Personas, um, they have big plans for that platform uh, going forward. They're they're planning on integrating that into a complete um, um, kind of uh, not forget the I can't think of the word um, a whole thing of of uh, high end audio equipment. You know, I I know what you, I can't think of the word either, but either, but I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, kind of like UA has created UA World, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, it's good. I think that's good. The competition is good because I mean, yeah, I I like Pro Tools because I use Pro Tools. I don't really care, but I can't say that Avid, like that. I feel like Avid as a company has had my best interest at heart for <laughs> many, for many years. I'm not feeling 
the abundance of love. Yeah, you're not getting them. warm and fuzzy. Yeah, I'm really not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really not. Well, I, I've always found that the the guys who use Pro Tools are the ones that don't want to learn another another dog because it's just too much goddamn trouble right now. You know. Well, yeah, there's that, and also I might be more tempted because I'm very interested in Logic and Ableton and all these other ones, but I'm lucky in that I'm actually working all the time. So. That's a good problem to have, but it does mean that it's very hard for me to justify taking a uh, time off from paying work or a you know like, you know how clients right, are. They're right. like, "Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Is it done yet?" To learn a new thing, but if I was going to learn one, I've I'd, I'd got to say Ableton would be very tempting because of the way that it works for beat-based music. Um, I, I think is just nerdy, interesting, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, but for right now, I'm stuck. Stuck in Pro Tools land, oh, but you're working, it's just something yeah. I ever think about. Yeah, because I'm working. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you know, for me, you know, I, I kind of, um, I don't like to be stuck, so I, 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 I like to have, like to be well versed in multiple DAWs. So if one decides, well, you know, we're not going to support anymore, so I could just <laughs> quickly move to something else, you know. I, I could not. I would be totally screwed for for some time. I had Ableton for years, and I didn't keep up on it. I just didn't have the time. And I had Logic, too, for a while. But if all of a sudden Avid went out of business, which actually I'm surprised they haven't the way they treat us customers, <laughs> I would definitely, you would be laughing, and I'd be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, uh, every every artist has their way of kind of, working in a studio and and you know as a producer and as an artist you have a unique perspective um what do you like to do how do you like to to work to kind of capture the sound you're looking for i think for me i i the first thing i do is sit down with the artist and figure out what environment do they need to be their best, which depends on them as a person, whether they're a solo thing or a live thing, a live, real existing live band. I have my studio set up so that um, I can do a full six-piece band, and everyone gets their own cue mix. They're all happy, you know, blah blah blah. Um, and so, and I love working that way because it's so, as you know, it's so exciting. It's just exciting being in the middle of a room of a full band playing. It's also incredibly efficient if they're good, because you're getting all these tracks done at once. The layering thing, you know, for all its, I mean, it's, 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 it's much less efficient. It just simply takes more time, right? you know, as opposed to like, I'm getting six tracks on this song all at once. Um, so I have this band I'm working on right now. I'm doing their, I did their last album. I'm doing their new album, Joanne Parker. And she's really killing it up here in the Midwest. It's a great story. She's a bluesy R and B type. Oh, I know Joy Joyanne. Really you do? Well. Oh, she yeah. She just went and did a bunch of gigs in Florida. And yeah, so, have you seen no, her in your part of the country? Yeah. Next time you see Joyanne, just tell her tell her I said hello. Oh she my God, that's exactly amazing! Who I am. What a small world. Well, she's a treat to work with, and the whole band is too. Oh, yeah, she's they're amazing. And because they're an existing band that gigs, you know, five million times a year up here. It's just so great to just set them up in the studio and all play live. But if it was like a young artist doing their first time in the studio and all they've ever done is acoustic vocal, blah, 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 and they're doing a full band song, then I think sometimes they're intimidated. Sometimes they're thrilled, like I'll get a, my session people you know, in here, and they, sometimes they would love it, but certain people that are shy, they might be too intimidated. You know what I mean? So it really depends on the artist. Um, my favorite way... I gotta say, I don't hate the full band at once thing. There's something really thrilling about that. Well, you, do you, know, you, do, also, do you agree? You get more dynamic out of the recording. It it comes to life. Yeah, totally. Um, I I find you know you start adding click tracks, you start adding layering, you you kind of suck the life out of out of the song. You know? Yeah, and if, if that's what it's supposed to be, because it's supposed to be a, you know, if you're making a, a record that's you know, I mean, I suppose on one side of that organic spectrum, you have like the Grateful Dead, right? Mm. Um, where everything's just kind of like bouncing around and loose and everything like that. On the other side of that spectrum, as far as live bands, you have maybe Steely Dan, which is like tighter than tight. Right. And 
you know, it depends on the band, but there is definitely a joy when they can all see each other and they're playing off each other and they start smiling. That's when you know it's, you know, it's getting good. But I will say then, have you ever done this where you get a young, say you have a young kind of indie rock or punk rock band and they're super young and they've never been in the studio before and they're like, because they've read tape op or whatever, they're like, we want to cut all all together. We want to cut live because we really like the Rolling Stones old albums and blah, blah, blah. And they get in there and they can't play together at all. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, a, that's, well, then that's not a good way to work with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it really depends on the artist. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I know exactly what you mean. You I kind of thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> been there many times. Yeah, actually, I've been on both sides of that because I was in that band in a certain age doing that, watching the engineer's eyes, you know, squint and going, I don't think he thinks we're very good. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, the industry, um, what's happening in the, in the music industry today. Um, we are, you know, I mean, let's face it we are in a world where streaming is the way the consumer has embraced uh a, as far as how they consume music they're consuming more they're paying less it's really a win-win for them but unfortunately they now no longer look at recorded music as a product which not only hurts independent artists but it also hurts studios like ours and in production because if you don't have, if you're not creating a product and people expecting it for free, we're spending money and not getting a return on it. How has this affected you as an artist with this new world of uh, streaming? Drastically. It's drastically affected me. It's definitely influenced my decisions on how to run my studio and my work life heavily. Um, for example, when I saw this coming for, cause I made a great living in the nineties, just writing songs. You can't do that anymore. You right. can barely even do that in Nashville anymore. The number of people who are able to do it is much smaller. I mean, I used to write like, you know, I, so I write a bunch of songs on a Johnny Lang album. Now, uh, none of them are the single. So in order to get my crappy songs, they have to buy the CD <laughs> to get that one hit single that I didn't write. It was right. great to be me. <laughs> I was piggybacking. Um, but I started uh, producing um, around 2000, right when Napster first started. It wasn't because I was some visionary about the way the, the industry was going. It's because I was having to make these sexy-sounding demos in order to seduce artists into cutting my songs. You had to make a... So I had to, you know, I had a Fox Dex digital multi-track recorder that sounded like crap and this crappy Elisa's HR-16 drum machine. Mm -hmm. But I figured out how to make stuff sound kind of weird and kind of cool. And I remember I did this one demo of a song I wrote with Johnny Lang for his second album. We brought it into the studio, David Z's producing, and Steve Cropper's on guitar. And um, dude from Little Feet is on, Richie yeah. uh, from Little Feet is on drums, and two of my favorite musicians of all time. And... David says, hey, Kevin, play him that tape, you know, play him that song she wrote with Jane. And so I put it on, and it ends, and I'm, I'm dying of nervousness and fear, you know. Because, by the way, Steve Cropper looks like an all-star wrestler. The guy's huge. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and at the end of it, Cropper stands up and goes, well, we can record it, but we're never going to beat that demo. And I was like, I love you, Steve Cropper. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the first time I ever thought I could be a engineer-producer. But what I... How this has affected me since then is that, um, like, I got into doing a lot of sync music and music for ESPN and things like that. I probably wouldn't have gotten into that, except for that that's been a steady source of making money, you know. And plus, it's, it happens to be really, really fun. Um, and a nice break from working with artists. God bless artists, but it's kind of fun to get together with my session buddies. And ESPN will say, Kevin, we need 15 90-second-ish spots in the style of Blah, you know, everything from 70s funk to Radiohead or any, I mean, just bluegrass, you know, all over the map. And that's really, really fun. But I don't know that I would have gotten into that, doing that, any of that sync music stuff, if it wouldn't have been that, you know, the, for the fact that there's just, there's no publishing uh, 
revenue anymore, you know, or very little. So it's definitely influenced me. I try not to think about it too much because I don't want to walk around and be pissed off all the time, you know, about how the guy that owns Spotify makes, you know, 50,000 million gajillion dollars a year. I just heard something today, a woman who knows more about the music business stuff than me. She said, yeah, Spotify just fired a bunch of people. They're the humans they had working there that listen to new music and decide what gets featured on playlists and stuff because they're going all into AI. And I was just thinking, well, thank God they're doing some cost-cutting measures there at Spotify because they're not making enough money. Yeah, right. There's too much fat over there. they got to cut out some middle <laughs> So, you know, I, I try not to think about it, to tell you the truth. Um, I feel really bad for the artists that I work with, though, because they do have to go out there and deal with that. I mean, the last day of a record for me, I, they get me mix approval in the final mix, and I'm like, good luck out there, kid. See you next year. But uh, I don't know. The other side of me, though, is that I grew up in punk rock, and so we were never making any money. You know what I mean? Because everyone hated our music, and probably (laughs) rightfully so. (laughs) You know, so um, I I guess that side of it makes it maybe a little easier for me to accept, um, accept, you know, what's going on now. But am I wild about it? Absolutely not. Do I think it's right? No. Do I have any idea how to fix it? Well, you know, uh, I've been kind of watching this um, as it evolves. And I remember back when, uh, you know, Napster came out, LimeWire, you know, and then, of course, we moved into iTunes with the 99-cent downloads, and that evolved into Spotify and streaming. So, really, the the whole uh, digital revolution has been driven by a continual change and, and evolution of the of the platforms, so it's you know safe to say that Spotify is reaching the end of its world, and that something new is coming along. And I'm watching some of these streaming services that are being developed that are based off of this blockchain, uh, which is the technology that um, cryptocurrency uses to secure itself. And interesting. Yeah, and what, like there's Audius, there's Emanate, there's Audio Locks, uh, and basically what these do is that no one company can own this streaming service. It's owned by the fans and by the artists, and it's more of a direct connection, and they are claiming that because all their expenses are really just running the nodes... Uh, that up to 80% can be uh, funneled back to the artists that are creating the content. Interesting. Yeah, and it's also decentralized, and you get paid immediately because it's all based on these smart contracts or these um, uh, applications that automatically trigger whenever your song is accessed to be streamed. Wow. And I so, didn't know anything about this. This is the first I've heard of this. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is what's uh, what I'm seeing coming down the pike. Like Audius um, is uh, is one that seems to be the the uh, the leader in the of the packs right now because it has the backing of Katy Perry, uh, Jason Derulo, Naz, Pusha T. A lot of the EDM artists are all on this platform. And in fact, I even put my podcast up on Audius now, um, these, this blockchain-based streaming service. And, you know, I see this as definitely a potential um, change or e- an evolution of the streaming services. And companies like Spotify, they're either going to have to adapt or they're going to, you know, fall by the wayside because as artists realize hey, I can make more money by going to Audius than right. being on Spotify. You know, the fans are going to follow. You know, that they're going to follow yeah. the, the artists. So what yeah, do you think that of that? Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Potential? Are you kidding? I love it. I wish I, I didn't... I can't believe I didn't hear about this till now. I, I guess maybe I've been a, a little bit intentionally ignoring news like that because it's so depressing when you look at interviews with 
Joe Rockstar saying, I got 12 million thousand plays on Spotify and I got nine cents. Yeah. So I try not to think about it. But this is, uh, I've been thinking like you, I think, for, for years. I mean, when Spotify came along, I was like, you know what? Well, this is something that you, you learn when you get older. Nothing is permanent. Right. Everything is a phase, just like raising your kids. Everything is a phase, you know? And I knew that Spotify it was a phase. Uh, I knew that it wasn't going to last forever, but I was also like, I hope it doesn't get replaced by something even worse. Um, but this sounds really interesting, what you're talking about. I would, I'm going to read up on it. Yeah, and, you know, I think that one of the things we should be mindful of as independent artists when, when all of this streaming and digital revolution started, we really didn't have a seat at the table. We need to kind of get ourselves together and get a seat at that table and make sure that these record companies cannot corrupt what is being developed. You know? Because that really did happen with Spotify. The fact that they don't pay very much and the, the not very much that they pay, most of it goes to the record you know, companies. The record companies. Yeah. Yeah. So who are less important now than ever? Well, there's also another technology that's coming along that is going to really put uh, a bug in the butt of these record companies. Um, there's a site called Royal.io. Now, this you're going to find, I think, really interesting. What they do is they allow artists to create non-fungible tokens, these NFTs, that represent a portion of their streaming or publishing royalties. Now, one rap artist, what he did is he took and he created these NFTs on two songs, and he made enough of these NFTs to cover the royalty streaming royalties of one half of each song. And I think each one was like 0.015% of the streaming royalties. And he sold it to his fan base and he was able to generate almost $600,000 of upfront income. Whoa. Yeah. Not Hello. only that, he now has almost 3,000 fans who have an economic interest in making sure that his music is streamed. Okay? That's really interesting. And to top it off, these things are bought and sold on an open market. So as these things are bought and resold, he gets a commission off of every time they're resold. Because it's all based on these smart contracts. So whenever... Let's say I bought one of his NFTs and I made my money back, whatever the case may be, and then I decide that I'm going to sell it to someone and I sell it for maybe double what I bought it for. Naz will get a percentage of that resale value automatically pulled from that price and sent to him through a smart contract. Wow. And that's in in perpetuity. That's forever. Just like all my former publishing deals. Yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, great. think about it. You can now sell stock in a song and have people invest wow. in that. That's, that's got to be the future, wouldn't you think? Well, that's that's where, I mean, these things are here. They're now. They're they're going on. They're they're happening. But I mean, that's got to be the new model. I mean, that makes complete sense to me, right? You know, and, and, and you still you know have to do. You'd have to build a fan base in order to pull that off, but it's better than building a fan base and then not getting paid for it. Well, you know the 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 rub of that is is that if you really think about it, that whole um, uh, economy or that whole world of building a fan base is now level because of right. social media marketing and content creation. Anybody can go on the internet and create their own reality show where they can give right, right. their fans, you know, hey, this is my world, and, and create that fan base that would invest in them because they're vested into them as as a brand and as people, you know? Right. 
Oh, I think it's fascinating. And fans must love it because of that. Everyone wants to get behind the velvet rope and be with their artist of choice, right? Right. Not just watching from the, you know, 59th row. So I bet you they like it in that regard, too. Well, I mean, even someone like you, I mean, you know, you're producing in your studio and um, I'm sure that there is a huge amount of people who would love to see that process of writing a song and then going into the studio and producing that song. That process, I mean, that is the... uh, the the beginnings of all of these you know shows that we see on television from American Idol to you know uh, America's Got Talent to uh, Songland to all of these these shows people have a thirst for that you know I mean yeah, yeah. You know, we've been you know slammed over the head with reality shows for thirty years so we're very acclimated to that kind of content. That's true. I've I've never been a reality show guy. The only one I ever liked was Intervention. I just I think that was <laughs> fascinating. I do. I just I love that one. But um, I never watched the singing contest shows. Partly, I guess I, I it I don't know. There's something about them that irks me. Makes me crabby watching them. You know, uh, I, I felt the same way until I started to really dissect what they're doing. And it's interesting because they're giving, like, um, uh, what's the name of the damn show? I'm getting a senior moment now. Uh, uh, the, the one with uh, Blake Shelton on it. Um, yeah, The Voice. The Voice. That one, they're taking seasoned artists and developing them beyond the club scene and taking them to that next level. So to me, I find that interesting how they they develop them and how they're working with them. And then you got the one with the songwriters, the Songland, right? Where they take songs and they pair them up with a producer writer, and then they they make that song better, make it into something that a major artist wants to do. I should watch that one. You're right. I should watch it. I think what turned me off on the singing contest ones is that I've had many clients who've been on those shows and I've seen a copy of the contract. Mm-hmm. And it just makes it just makes that makes me sick. Oh, well, yeah. That I mean, just it just know. makes that just makes me sick. But I would be interested in watching that that song one. I'm surprised I haven't watched it yet. That was I should get on that. Yeah, that it, I really enjoyed that. That was a, a lot of fun to watch. Um I will watch that. I'll take your word for it. Definitely. A yeah. Good recommendation. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I mean, we could geek out for hours here, you know? I still think we should. <laughs> we should We should do it. We should make your people listen to That's it right. until they just want to die. <laughs> How long do you think they'd survive us? I, I think we I could probably know. kill them all and have with it. How much 20 of a minutes. gear geek they are, you know? Yeah, nobody nobody's like us. <laughs> nobody wants to hear that crap. We both know it. I don't know. I'd but, sit uh, there no, for hours and listen. I know. I would, too. Um, okay, one last thing. I am looking sure. at two cool pieces of gear in my studio. I have, remember when the, the Boss Chorus Ensemble first came out and it looked like oh, yeah, a big yeah. gray metal UFO? I have mine from back then. Really? And I have it, yeah, I have it hooked up in my patch bay using one of those radial um, uh XTC reamp things who makes are super easy to use to mix you know, in your DAW, mm-hmm. you know, using pedals like that. So that I have that hooked up that way, and also a, a Space Echo. Oh, oh, the uh, the Roland. Yeah. yeah, and it works. It's not like super noisy at all. It's in great shape, which is weird because the exterior looks like it was dragged behind a truck. But. Uh, yeah, yeah, it has a big tape, sticker on it. The little tape on the inside that spins. Yeah, around. I had took it to my guy, and he put he found new tape for it, and it was wasn't that expensive to have it cleaned up. It's got a, it must have been in a church in the seventies because it's got a big sticker on it that says "Prayer Changes Things." <laughs> so that's what tipped me off. Okay, <laughs> but it's, I don't I don't know if prayer changes things, but I know the space echo changes things because it sounds amazing. Oh yeah, you can't <laughs> beat some of that old vintage gear, you know. Yeah. Love it. I love it. But anyway, no, it was really fun doing this. I'm, I appreciate you. Thank you much uh, for having me on. It's my pleasure. 
And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. And uh, you guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn up loud. Screw the names. I gave you life. I gave you breath. I gave you love. I thought you might do the rest. Guess the whole damn thing's a little harder than I thought. You know my name, but the rest of it got lost. Maybe you should find another word for God. I gave my son, and it still hurts. Could not even put his body in the dirt. So I brought him home someday to come back. And you know there ain't no other word for that. Ain't no other word for that. Whatever name you want to use ain't what you say, it's what you do. I'll still be here, cause that's the job. Use whatever name you want God knows it ain't the only one I got So if I don't pick up Give me one more shot But next time try another word for God The blood you spill While you say my name Drop still running through my veins But you're so far gone You don't even know you're lost Man, I wish you'd find another word for God I wish you'd find another word for God Never cared about the words You all love to say in church up here in the great beyond If my name won't stop the pain You cause each other every day Maybe you need another word for God Maybe you need another word for God Let's start all over Try something else Maybe start with something bigger than yourself Call it life, call it love Call it whatever the hell you want But it's time to find another word for God Damn. Time to find another word for God If tear us apart It might take me forever But I will break your heart Something you need That you can't even see From the start Put me out of your misery You don't want to waste yourself on me Maybe I need saving Or maybe you need someone to save Dorian Gray 
out of your misery You don't want to waste yourself on me Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Here we go, broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, on Rock Radio UK, the Blues Channel. You are now live from the Midnight Circus. This is Lahamadu, and I got a great show for you today. Today, our featured artist is Weasel Malone. He's got a brand new release out. We'll be listening to tracks from that. And, of course, we'll be talking with Weasel at the top of the hour. Now, this is the voice of Indie Blues. This is the show that brings you nothing but currently touring artists who are out there creating new, original music rooted in the blues. We embrace the diversity of music that always has and still is being created from those roots. Now, if you get a chance, stop by our website at makingascene.org. We got some great articles, CD reviews, artist interviews, and so much more. And of course, I have got some great new music that I know you're going to love. And some great new artists I can't wait to introduce you to. And of course, I aim to misbehave. Cool, cool. 